Welcome to the Deep Blue On My Doorstep podcast. I'm Tracy Ainsworth from the University of New South Wales. In this podcast series, we will talk to marine experts about the marine environments that we have right on our doorsteps and what we can do to help conserve and protect these blue spaces. Today on Deep Blue On My Doorstep, we are joined by Dr. Mitchell Harley from the Water Research Lab at the University of New South Wales. Mitch, thanks so much for joining us today on the Deep Blue On My Doorstep podcast. Great to be with you, Tracy. Thanks. Honestly, Mitch, it sounds like you have one of the best jobs in the entire world. You study how beaches change. Yeah, to be honest, I can't complain. Yeah, I get to um, go to the beach and and, and that's my office. Uh, So, uh, yeah, I get to travel the world and study all the all the different coastlines around the world and see how they change over time due to things like extreme storms and and waves and and sea level rise and things like that so definitely can't complain it's absolutely amazing how did you start on this as your job studying beaches how did I start? Actually, to be honest, I was never really a beach person. I know probably <laughs> most people on your podcast have probably you know, grew up loving the beach. I was probably a little bit different to that. Um, as a child, I was probably a little bit scared of the beach. And I was actually, while my brothers went to the beach, I was actually one who chose to go in the swim in the pool. I really was interested in nature and seeing nature and how it changes it. That really encapsulated my imagination. And I was also naturally drawn to mathematics as well. Um, so that kind of, uh, adding the two up, that kind of led me to a d- uh, career in environmental engineering, yeah. uh, which really ad- enabled me to combine the, the, those two loves. And, and from that, um, like I said, I was never particularly drawn to, to beaches per se, but the environment more generally, until... Um, at the end of my degree, I was offered the opportunity to study a PhD. My lecturer at the time, Professor Ian Turner, said, look, actually, I've got this PhD uh, opportunity available where basically your entire role is to get a quad bike and drive up and down the beach every month and measure the beach and see how it changes. <laughs> nice. I thought, at the time, I thought, yeah, that sounds like a pretty good job to me. Yeah. And um, from that, that, that started my career in studying coastal erosion and coastline change. Yeah. Um, that's that's such a lovely story. I really like that you said that um, you, you weren't that kid who was, you know, on the beach and in the water and just loving it and that's what, that's what started you in this kind of research because I think it's really nice for kids to hear that all these different interests, whether it's maths or nature, you just can take you on a completely unexpected path to riding a quad bike up and down a beach, which would be a dream for so many people. But also things like technology is really important in what you do. Like you said, you started out riding around on, on quad bikes, but that's changed a lot in the last 10 years, right? How you study beaches. Oh, absolutely. Look, when I first started my PhD, I was lucky enough to um, join, my supervisor was Professor Andrew Short, who's a very famous um, professor in studying coastlines. Um, and I had joined him on the way. He had been measuring um, Colorado-Navine Beach um, every single month for 35 years, which was quite an impressive data set and was actually one of the longest coastal monitoring data sets worldwide. And when I first started my PhD, I joined him on the first surveys and um, he took with him to the beach just uh, two measuring sticks and, and a measuring tape. And mm-hmm. he did that for 35 years. That was the way that he measured how the coastline changed over time. Um, my first role as a PhD was actually to, to quantify how good that was. So I actually joined him on, on, that, um, on those surveys with the, a very new technology at the time, which was called GPS. 
to that period, the GPS was only accurate to a few metres um, due to some, mm -hmm. some rules by the US, which uh, actually stopped it from being so accurate. But it had just become accurate enough where you could actually measure the position on the beach to about two centimetres. So I brought along these GPS and together we did a comparison to see how accurate those simple measuring techniques yeah. um, were. Then over time, since that, since that time, um, you know, the technology has just evolved out of sight. With the GPS, we were using quad bikes and then we introduced using video cameras onto the beach. I would never have believed it, but then we were replaced by robots and, um, <laughs> and, and drones and things like that. So um, in the past five years, we've been using a lot of drone technology. And then the most recent thing is actually using CubeSats. So um, now we, we, there's these whole constellations of these tiny satellites in the sky that are taking photos of the coast every single, um, uh, every single day. And, yeah. and through that technology, we're able to get a whole new perspective on how coastlines change. Yeah, you mentioned that in one of your emails and I had to look up what it was. I, I hadn't heard of it before. That's absolutely incredible that that's now how you're measuring um, beaches. Can you explain it a bit more? I mean, I'd, nev I'd not heard of CubeSats. Sure. Um, so there's these different commercial companies out there. Um, the one that we work with is a company called Planet, and they built these uh, CubeSats, which are basically very miniature satellites. Um, they're they're pretty low cost because so so so, and because they're so low cost, they actually throw hundreds of them up at a time. And so there's these whole constellations of these miniature satellites, and by having enough of them uh, floating around in the sky, um, you can get Almost anywhere on the earth, you can get approximately a photo of your beach every single day. And, and at, at pretty high resolution too, we're talking uh, three meter pixels. So, um, um, wow. and with that, we're experimenting with this new technology to um, map, track and map coastline change on a global scale at this daily frequency, which when I, look, when I reflect back to when I started my PhD 15 years ago, I mean, yeah. that was simply unheard of. Yeah, that's... That's phenomenal amount of information. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's a challenge in itself because you're, you're, you're generating, you know, yeah. petabytes of, of data and just simply kind of distill that into something that's meaningful for us is, is a challenge in itself. That's a really big change in skill sets for people that you're recruiting into doing this kind of research as well. Like for the students coming in, they need to have a understanding of big data, um, how to fly drones or, you know, all this really new technology is now, I guess, a really important skill for kids coming into this kind of research area. Yeah, absolutely. So we're working more and more with remote sensing technology. So um, actually not having to visit the beach to measure the beach. <laughs> no. um, yeah, which which look is in a way it's it's fantastic that we've got these amazing data but we also and this is what we teach with our students we always want to instill in them the immense value you get from simply going to the beach on a on a weekly basis or something and just looking at the waves understanding yeah. how the beach has changed because you you simply can't replicate that even through these these huge satellite yeah. data sets and things like that yeah you're still going to be able to to picture what all that data is telling you right Absolutely, and when I reflect back on my career, just the I, um, just spending time at the beach and just absorbing all the information that's going on at the beach is just absolutely invaluable. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I think is really cool about what you're doing is just how involved the public can get in that 
breadth of technology and work you're doing, you've started CoSnap, which is for those people who have feet on the beach every day, um, they can get involved, right, and help bridge that gap between technology and and people. Yeah, exactly. So, so CoSnap was something that we started um, back in 2017, and it kind of evolved from, I mean, whenever I went to the beach, I always uh, took a snap of the beach because I, I, I love data, you yeah. may, may have imagined. And um, it just uh, broke my heart every time that um, it, thinking about every every snapshot of the beach was a potential capturing that moment in time of, of the coastline. And, and if we don't take a photo of it, then that moment's lost. From those ideas, um, we thought, well, if we actually crowdsource all these these photos and smartphones are of uh, sufficient resolution these days that you can actually do that, maybe we can, rather than just myself taking photos, we yeah. can actually, you know, supercharge that and, and get a, a huge picture of how our coastlines are changing over time. So that led to CoSnap, where we, working with the New South Wales government, the Department of Planning, Industry and Environment, we decided to, we just installed these two stainless steel camera cradles just at, at Manly Beach and, and North Narrabeen on Sydney's northern beaches and invited the public to put their smartphone in and take a photo. Nice. We had no idea how successful it would be. We, we didn't quite under, know at the time how we, what we were going to do with the images, but photos started to come in and, um, and based on that, my my background in coastal imaging technology, which is this idea that you can use photos to track changes to the coastline. Um, we developed the technology for, for, so all these photos coming into the public, we could actually use it to measure the, the change in the coastline quite accurately. So in fact, probably as accurately as what we were doing with a measuring tape yeah. and what Professor Andrew Short was doing for 35 years. And yeah, so it became a really successful implementation of a citizen science project. Yeah. And um, since then, it's kind of uh, gone a little bit viral <laughs> nice. in that, um, I mean, it's such a very simple idea and very low cost and involves the community. So it's just yeah. a win-win situation for all. And um, we've we've rolled out this technology all around the world now. So we have over 100 CoSnap stations worldwide in 16 different countries. Really? That's yeah. that's amazing. I didn't realize it had had gone that big. That's that's huge. Yeah, we're I think we're almost on every continent now except Antarctica. So um Oh wow. Um yeah, so maybe we need to install a station there just yeah, to tick yeah. The box. call out to Australian Antarctic Division. Exactly. <laughs> They've got people down there. Oh wow, that's um that's amazing. So where where does this go next? Um what what do you do with all of those photos that it must be a huge amount of data that you're getting in now yes yeah, so um so what we do with those photos is firstly they have a visual record of the changes that are going on to the coastline but as i said we actually had developed technology where can actually extract the changes in the shoreline position over time and with this data what my particular interest in is actually in, in forecasting coastline change so oh, wow. um just like your weather forecast, knowing that it's rain on the horizon, but actually know seven days in advance um, if there's the likelihood of coastal erosion actually, and actually being able to pinpoint exactly what on what particular yeah. beach could be vulnerable to coastal erosion in the next seven days. And then not only that, but also like in the coming months and, and years as well. So by having this record taken from all the community photos, we're able to develop this huge database 
of changes that then we can use into our forecasting systems to actually know on a on a beach by beach on a regional scale and and all across potentially the world where coastal erosion might be happening in yeah. the next seven days and so wow that's amazing because it's how people use the beaches right sporting events nippers events all these things happening on beaches and yeah that's that would be amazing to be able to know in advance that or maybe not that weekend <laughs> Yeah, and and look, not only that, but it's actually also about saving lives. So yeah. in Australia, yes, it has a lot of recreational advantages um, for coastal erosion of properties and infrastructure. But um, when you're thinking about coastlines like um, Bangladesh, for instance, a very low-lying coastline where these huge coastal storms can actually mean thousands of of deaths tra- tragically. So yeah. It yeah. has a whole range of applications that we're looking to roll out. That's amazing. So in that instance where you're you're forecasting uh, coastal erosion risk in a particular area, that's because of, of human use of that beach and that coastline is there's lots of housing um, that's encroached into those areas. So you're able to say to, to people living there that this is a, a big risk that's coming. Is that what you mean? Yeah, exactly. Um, so coastal erosion in general is only, people only generally tend to talk about it when there's a property or something in the way of it. Um, yeah. So uh, a, a good example of that is uh, in 2016, we had a very big um, coastal storm that hit the whole Southeast Australian coastline. Um, we actually, our research group, we actually saw that coming a few days in advance. And lucky enough at the time, we were lucky. Actually, we have our own twin-engine airplane, courtesy of the UNSW School of Aviation. With it, and that twin-engine airplane has a hole in the bottom with a, a this a lidar unit, which can actually scan the entire coastline. Yeah. And um, just before that storm hit, we actually mobilised that um, twin-engine airplane to fly the entire coastline. Wow. Before the storm, and then immediately after the storm. So for the first time, we could capture the entire coastline change. From an extreme storm event, and we actually found 11.5 million cubic meters of sand was shifted during uh, that storm event alone. Wow! Which is actually, if you think of the Melbourne Cricket Ground, that's actually filling the Melbourne Cricket Ground up with sand over seven times. So incredible amount of sand. But during that storm, I'm not sure if you remember it, but um, there's actually a famous swimming pool that ended up on Colorado Beach. There's some iconic images of a swimming pool on the beach, and people naturally attracted to the the attention was always drawn to the mm-hmm. swimming pools and, and the infrastructure but from those measurements actually what we found that the largest coastal erosion was actually not Colorado at all it was actually uh, a few hundred kilometers further north of on the coast and up near near foster where there was uh, probably about 30 percent more erosion but of course no swimming pools or, yeah. or houses close to the coastline so yeah. um it doesn't attract that attention but yeah Coastal erosion is is only really but becomes an issue in the media when it's um, intersects with um, human influences. Yeah. What are some of the other issues though for the this change on beaches where it's not such a you know a house or a pool or something like that? What are some of the other implications for change on beaches? Look, um, some of the implications. Um, one of the things that I'm um, really interested in is actually shifting storm events. So that um, storm that we had in 2016 was a very unusual event where normally on the east coast of Australia, we get our storms coming from the south or southeast, from these big mid-latitude cyclones. 
Uh, and actually, you know, our entire coastal mm. communities are aligned with expecting that um, storms come from the, these southerly directions. If you if you go mm. travel up and down the east coast of Australia, you notice that uh, all of our most of our communities they encroach a lot more in the sheltered areas of the of the beach, which is yeah. generally protected from these southerly storm events. What we learned from 2016 was that actually storm event actually came from the northeast east to northeast a very unusual storm direction and for and really exposed all those um, communities that are generally protected from these these big storm events it wasn't actually a, a big storm event in itself in terms of wave height but it was the unusual direction that it came from was what led to um, the severe erosion that we saw and so this is a big concern that we've actually uh, I guess I arranged our our societies and our communities and, and planned uh, around a certain type of wave conditions and these shifting wave conditions can actually really I guess expose areas that we, were previously not thought of as erosion hotspots so that's a huge uh, interest of mine and, and yeah. something that we're looking at. For a lot of for example the New South Wales coastline we're seeing a lot of you know development and communities that are growing and things like that is that something that you're that this work can start to work towards is where are the best places for that development to happen and how do we think about how people are going to interact with those beaches where demand is going to be yeah absolutely so um look a lot of the issues we've been dealing with in in australia in terms of coastal erosion are based purely on um, poor planning decisions made over generally often over 100 years ago (laughs) and we're still dealing with the consequences um look I don't, I don't blame the coastal uh, researchers mm-hmm. at the time because they really had no, no data or, or no idea about how coastlines change. And unfortunately, those decisions were made. But look, the best we can do now is that we, we uh, with all this available information, we, we, can't, we um, don't replicate the mistakes of the past and we plan our, um, where we put our infrastructure, where we put our populations accordingly but also recognising that we're also in a time of tremendous uncertainty with regards to shifting storms, sea mm-hmm. level rise and the combination of all these things. Yeah. Is that the next big challenge for your research? Is um, is those predictions going forward as storms change, climate change, those kind of pressures influence our coastlines? Is that the next big challenge? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, so firstly, yeah, with with coastal storms and so being more prepared to the uncertainty of what's happening next. So I was talking about forecasting systems. We're now working with the Bureau of Meteorology to develop these erosion systems so that even if there is an unusual storm event, we at least um, are prepared for it. Admittedly, only seven days in advance, but we can at least potentially evacuate or, or do the necessary preparation measures to minimise the impacts of these events, at least. That's in the short term. Um, Longer term, we need to think about, firstly, planning measures. Um, And, of course, the the big elephant in the room is is sea level rise. Um, So that's something that I'm also interested in, in understanding sea level rise and how that's affecting our beaches in the longer term as well. How you've you mentioned all these technology advances for um, for monitoring coastal erosion and beach change. How then will you monitor sea level rise? Is that a different technological advance you need? 
Yeah, so sea level rise is a particular challenge in terms of sea level rise impacts on beaches. I tend to think of a beach as a bit like an iceberg, um, and we're very good, all of this technology that I've mentioned, we're, we're really just measuring the bit of the beach that we see, which is just the very tip of the iceberg. Yeah. But beaches are extend to quite deep, you know, up to 20 metres or so, um, the active beach zone. And our technology and our ability to monitor what's going on at those depths from, from the mean sea level down to 20 metres is still very limited. And it's a very challenging area to work in. So waves are breaking all the time. It's very dangerous. The yeah. risk assessments are <laughs> yep. uh, a lot more paperwork. A, <laughs> a lot more paperwork. And and um, so we're getting more of a more of a picture of what's happening at that tip of the iceberg, the beach that yep. we see. We still have very few measurements of of the um, sand that's moving around at those lower depths, and that's actually understanding what's moving around at those depths is critical to understanding sea level rise on beaches and yeah. we're still quite quite a bit in the dark on that um well i've yeah. been seeing i've been seeing images of uh of mars uh <laughs> and um perseverance rover moving about i like to think that those depths between 20 meters and zero is a bit like the surface of mars in terms of our knowledge we it's still really unknown about um how sand is moving around yeah. and our ability to forecast and predict that is still in very much in its infancy. Wow, that's fascinating because you mentioned before with that big 2016 storm, I can't remember what volume of sand you said that was 11. lost. 11.5 million cubic yeah. metres, yeah. Where did it go? Well, that's a good question, <laughs> yeah. So it's important to think about beaches that um, the sand, when you talk about sand being lost from the beach, it's actually not lost. It's, yeah. it's just It just goes into deeper water and... What we saw is uh, we, we saw a huge bulge of sand um, just about 200 metres offshore of the beach um, in depths of about four to five metres. And that, that uh, sand is just moved offshore and over time um, it naturally returns back onto the beach. And in fact, um, that's something that we've been looking at is a thing called beach recovery, knowing how fast that beach, how fast that uh, beach will recover from these storm events. Um, Another interesting thing that we've been looking at is um, the ability of these extreme storms to actually be a mechanism to input sand into the beach system. So what we actually saw um, from that 2016 storm, we took some very detailed three-dimensional measurements at Colorado Narrabeen Beach in Sydney, um, immediately before and immediately after. And when we looked at the entire three-dimensional beach system, we actually found that there was an increase in sand huh. over the entire beach. Yeah. So it potentially suggests that these extreme storms are ways of actually, in the longer term, mm. recharging the beach in, in some way. Um, and we just simply don't have much of an understanding of that at all at this stage. So maybe it's um, – so there's a lot of sand offshore the coast. Maybe it's these extreme storms are ways of – unlocking that sand which is stored in deeper water and bringing it towards yeah. the coast and and actually helping to maintain that that beach in the longer term that's that's something that we're also looking at wow that's that's really cool that's really turning the problem on its head right thinking about it in a different way and um i like that that idea about the beach recovery and repairing maybe some some problems of the past that's um that's absolutely fascinating um 
for people to get involved in what you're doing, is CoSnap the best way to to contact you and follow what you're doing? Yes. Uh, so CoSnap is a fantastic way to get involved. Um, so we just released a few months ago a CoSnap app. Um, so um, please download the app and get involved with the program. So all you need to do is download the app and, and visit one of our CoSnap stations along the coast. Or actually the good thing about the app now is that we actually also have this uh, do-it-yourself CoSnap station option, whereby maybe if you like to visit the coast every day and you walk past a good vantage point and, it, and there's a handrail or a fence post or something that you can rest your phone on to control the position of the photo, yeah. All you need to do, you can simply set up your own coastal monitoring um, site at your own local beach using that. So, and through that, we we're hoping to use these records all around Australia and around the world to understand how our coastlines change. Oh, that's fantastic! That's um, that's great. So it doesn't matter what beach people go to; they can find a way to get involved, and um, for schools as well who do a lot of teaching yes. on beaches. That's something that we'd love to, to get more involved in is actually educational packages, so incorporating it into curriculums and things like that and mm-hmm. enabling school kids to get involved and help us to, in the research to understand these coastline changes. Ah, nice. That's fascinating. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and telling us about all your work. It's it's really amazing to hear about the all those details and also the fact that the beach is just the tip of the iceberg. I think that's that's really cool. Um, Thanks so much. Thanks, Tracy. Thanks, Mitch. Thank you for listening to the Deep Blue On My Doorstep podcast. Don't forget to check out our website at events.unsw.edu.au where you'll find all the photographs from this podcast series featuring the beautiful places that we've been discussing and the organisms found in these blue spaces.